Welcome to Expound, our verse-by-verse study of God's Word. Our goal is to expand your knowledge of the truth of God by explaining the Word of God in a way that is interactive, enjoyable, and congregational. I'm going to ask um, a couple of my uh, Reload Love team members to come up, uh, Murray and Jarrett. Oh, they're right here. Hello, mate. Good to see you, Cobra. Um, Murray's an Australian. I'm not. By the way, I'm a Texan. And that's why he's in the middle. And um, so he has an Australian accent, and he turns it it's on. Spike, dude. A lot. It's Spike. But um, we're glad he's with us. And Jared, of course, is on our staff, and he looks differently because on this trip, you kind of look like. <laughs> I don't know, homeless or something. I, I you was, a, yeah. You I had, had this I had gray a, beard. That's right. That you shaved off. I shaved it off. Um, that's right. We I, wanted to do something a little bit different tonight, and we feel like it was important for us to share with you what we have done. We had a great weekend raising um, funds, and we just thought we owe it to this church to tell them where we've been and what we've done and where the money's going. So we're going to do that. We're going to have a, an evening of just sharing where we've been, showing you some pictures and a couple video clips, and telling the story, and then praying. And um, I need them up here because I don't know how long this voice is going to last tonight. And you know, by God's grace, you might be lucky and it might end, end, end up very quickly to run out. But allow me to frame what has gone on. Um, the militant group ISIS, known as the Islamic State, since July of t- 2014, they have wrecked havoc on the Middle East. I don't know if you've seen any of the videos or any of the pictures of the atrocities that they do and, and have done, but they have executed you probably only seen a few, but thousands upon thousands of people. And we met families who lost many relatives to this group of people. Um, 2.1 million refugees are a result of their work. 2.1 million internally displaced people in, in camps, 2,092 different locations around Syria and Iraq and that part of the Middle East. Well, we know that's what's been happening. If we've watched the news, we've seen it. But we've responded, you've responded, in a glorious weekend we called Reload Love, dropping the album. Yes. You remember that weekend just a couple weeks ago? Now for us, it seems like months ago. Because when you travel on a trip like this, doesn't it seem yeah, like oh, we've been gone like a month or two? Oh, mate, the days dragged on. No, it was, it was great, but it was. It seemed like <laughs> they, dra- they dragged on because I was with you. No, probably, uh, right? no, it was good. It was good. You jokes. The days were lengthened, though, for sure. I mean, one week seemed like it, it was a month, you know, on a trip like that, just packed full of great adventure and eye-opening revelation, really. And what was really wonderful is that we um, set a goal of raising $50,000 to help children um, who have been impacted by terror in that part of the world. And you were so generous, and almost three times that, almost $150,000 was raised. So we went because we wanted to identify projects and groups uh, that are working already in that part of the world, local churches and uh, relief organizations that 
match up with the vision that we were going to um, work in. But let me share with you what Jesus said. In Matthew 25, um, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So we believe that we went on a mission of mercy to the Middle East to be able to impact the least of these. We saw so many children, didn't we? So many family members who were left alone, bereft of their families. Um, we traveled to three countries. We flew into Lebanon, Beirut, Lebanon, and then we went to Erbil, Iraq, and Dohuk, Iraq, and then we flew into Jordan and back home. The reason we stopped in um, uh, Beirut, Lebanon, was to pick up a friend on this trip named Sammy Dagger. We, we had a team that we traveled with, and we're going to show you their picture. This was the team that we were with, and the man standing uh, second in, uh, in the back row, second from the left, a uh, little bit shorter, blue shirt, gray hair, that's Sammy Dagger. He's preached here before, he's been here before, and he shared the gospel. And he taught on Islam. And uh, we stopped to bring Sammy with us because he's invested so much over the years in Iraq. He's trained up pastors for generations in pastoring churches. And I've spoken with him in Baghdad years ago. Well, I had the opportunity to preach in his church in Beirut on Sunday morning. And then that evening we went down to Sidon. You know about Sidon from your Bibles. You read about Sidon in the scripture, Tyre and Sidon. Well, I always wanted to go to Sidon. Every time I go there, Sammy goes, you can't go. It's a militant city. Uh, people are killed. I can't let you go. Well, last summer when I was there, um, I talked to a driver. He said, I'll take you. <laughs> and I said, good, let's go. So Sammy found out about it and he goes, you are not taking them this time. So I was forbidden two times from going. So this time I said, Sammy, you keep promising that I get to go down to Sidon. So would you take me? He goes, Skip, it's a radical Islamic city. People get killed there. It's worse now than ever. But we're going toward Sidon, where you're going to be preaching tonight in a church at Remelia, it's called, a city nearby. Well, we talked Sammy into taking us into the city of Sidon. And um, he told me, but you can't get out of the car. Well, I did eventually talk him into letting me out of the car to take a couple of pictures. Not good. Well, if you know Skip, that's typical. Right? Well, <laughs> did, did we show the city of Sidon? He's we have dangerous. a picture. There you go. Yeah. See how beautiful that is? Now, that's toward the ocean, and that's some of the ancient ruins. If I were to show you the rest of the city, it's not as impressive. And it is um, very conservative Islamic. 
And while I was taking pictures, Sammy got out of the car to, to intercept uh, what he said, somebody who was coming toward me. Mate, I don't know if mate, you saw it. There's, there's like this whole city and this minivan pulls up with a van we're in. Skip gets out in his suit and tie and he's standing there like well, he's sticking a out. But I blended in, don't you? Hair, he didn't blend right? in at all. He's standing there and we're like, dude, get back in the car. And he's like, oh, let me switch a lens, you know? So, nugget. Pastor we or not, I was like, I'm staying in the car. Okay. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> so that night, that night, after, after this picture, we ended up at this church right next to Sidon. And what's significant, it's the only beacon of light in that part of the country. It's the only evangelical presence church in that part of the world. But what was interesting is the pastor. The pastor of this church is also the principal of a school. And what he said, he said, it's a Christian school. And we have a lot of students, but he said... 90% of the students that go to my school are Muslims. I said, wait a minute, what kind of a school is this? He goes, it's a Christian school. And the parents send their kids because they know it's the best education they can get in the city. 90% are Muslims. 50% come from Hezbollah backgrounds. Are you familiar with the terrorist group Hezbollah? So he says 50%. And then he showed me videos of the Christmas play. And he showed me videos of the parents, all dressed up in their Muslim garb, taking videos of their children with big smiles on their faces, the parents' faces, as their children are performing the Christmas play. Of the shepherds and the wise men and Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And he said, now these are families that raise kids to be jihadists, terrorists, but the possibility of being able to preventatively reach children before they could ever grow up to be them is his goal. So I thought that was a wonderful, wonderful evening. That was our time in Beirut. Yeah. The most, I think, like you said, I think the, the impact of that church is almost like a, an outpost. If you think about ancient culture, it was like, it, it's truly a lighthouse. And rather than being reactive towards um, ISIS and Islam, he, he was really proactive and educating them with who Jesus was and the impact there. And, and we made a contact there with um, Hearts of Lebanon and especially for Reload Love, is doing the same kind of thing, providing safe places. Um, what's interesting is how many refugees come out of Syria into Iraq. There's just as many, if not more, in Lebanon and Jordan as well, and that's what we realized um, by being at this church as well. So great opportunity for the gospel in that location. Yeah, and that was a, a common theme too, uh, focusing on the children. And Father Douglas did that in her bill as well. You know, his focus was to to educate the kids not to grow up with this uh, this anger and this violence, but but to turn instead to, to Jesus Christ. That's right. right. So the next day we flew to Erbil. We flew to northern Iraq. Mm-hmm. What was your impression as you landed in Iraq? First of all, people that you told before you were going, "Hey, I'm going to Iraq." What was their reaction? Well, the they rea- you were nuts? yeah, they think you're crazy. First of all, but you know, in when you walk with the Lord, it is such adventure of faith, as you guys know. When you walk with the Lord, it's very exciting, and you get to do stuff like this. And when you're in the will of the Lord, and especially when you're going in the name of Christ, 
wanting to reach the children and families that have been displaced in the name of Christ. We felt very protected, but yet, oddly enough, we felt there's still a hostility that you can feel in the air. Um, But it was very surprising to me. It seemed the landscape was still kind of run down and ancient because it's ancient Nineveh and Babylon where Daniel and Jonah were, obviously. Yeah, but there's a picture of the city of Erbil from that panorama. It's beautiful, that we were don't at. you think? I mean, it's, to me, it was very impressive. It is in the northern part of the country. It's in what is called Kurdistan. It's still technically Iraq, but the Kurdish people have a sort of an autonomous government in that part of the country. And it's referred to as Kurdistan and the Peshmerga. They're the, they're the fighters that are, are trying to hold back the Islamic State's incursion into these territories. But, but here's what I discovered in Iraq. And it, this was told me by a local Christian pastor. He said, right now there's a crack in Iraq. <laughs> and the crack is this. What ISIS has done has alienated the community to the extent that Though people are culturally Muslim, they're illiterate. They've never read the Koran. They don't know what Islam teaches. They just do it because they do it, like a lot of people in this country that are culturally Christians but not really born again. So he said what has happened is since the Islamic State has come in, attendance at the mosque has dropped 70%. People are seeing this is the true face of that uh, the true face of that religion that we've been raising. We don't want anything to do with it, and because of that, they're more open to the gospel than ever before. We saw that in um, at the school in Dahuk with the children, and we're going to get to that. Right. Good. So I'm glad. Don't miss so that don't point. don't spill the beans. Right. That's, that's important. Ahead. I, I don't have a script. I'm Australian. just winging this. Australian. Texan. Right. So, so the pastor that I'm mentioning, when we got to Erbil, I asked him, I said, what was it like to see these displaced people? He said, it was like a tsunami of human beings. One day life is normal on the streets. The next day you wake up and go out and there's hundreds of thousands of people sleeping in sidewalks, abandoned buildings, seeking shelter in churches. They're everywhere. They're just looking for a place to relocate to because they've been driven out of their villages. In fact, he said there's, and we visited it later, but we, he told us there's people that will find any place at all for a home. And there's a mall in town. We went to it. An unfinished mall. You'll see businesses on a couple levels and then empty rooms, not empty anymore. And we went to see one man. Mm-hmm. They call him the old man. Here's a photograph of him. Yeah. He's in his 80s. He's a Christian believer. He and his wife are filled with the love of the Lord. He was in bed. He has a broken leg because he had to walk 50, 75 miles uh, to relocate. And he broke his foot and his leg in the journey. And he's living in one of these little rooms in this mall, getting medicine from some of the Samaritan's Purse field staff. Mm-hmm. And so we got to go in and see him and to pray for him. But um, we were in Erbil, and then we drove up the next day to a little bit closer to the ISIS territory, the area of Dahuk, where there are lots of refugees. Now, Jared mentioned something important. When you read in your Bible that Jonah went to Nineveh, we drove right onto the plains of Nineveh. And ISIS has occupied the city of Mosul. You've seen that in the news. Mosul is ancient Nineveh. 
That's where their headquarters. We were just a few miles away from that. In fact, in this picture, right over that mountain, we're driving on the road, right over that mountain is where ISIS is stationed. So we were 20, 30 minutes away from them. And I was glad that that mountain separated us from them. But a group of believers from Mosul, this area of Nineveh, a whole church, if you can imagine this, a whole group of Christian believers left the city of Mosul and went down to Erbil to relocate as internally displaced peoples. They left their town because of ISIS. And they were going to this church that I spoke at. Now here's a photograph of the church, just about a third of the church. Wednesday night service, every seat packed. Every seat full. That's just a small section. But what you're looking at is people who are internally displaced. They left their home hours away, moved to this city, and are now going to this church. And most, 90% of the church, are refugees, internally displaced peoples. But what a night that was. Oh, that was amazing. And just on that photo right there, it was like four or five times larger than that. And, you know, for me, that was one of the highlights, being able to sit there. And, again, the hospitality is wonderful. I had a front row seat. And to hear Skip have the opportunity that evening, if you can imagine him teaching the book of Jonah in that very location where Jonah had given that same message a couple thousand years prior to that, talking about the ancient Ninevites who would do the same things by lopping off heads and scare tactics and terror. And Jonah had to go into Nineveh, Mosul, just like what we see today, preach repentance and the love of Christ, the love of God, and sure enough, Skip did the same message. And there were people sitting there that had experienced those exact things that the Ninevites did. And that, to me, was one of the highlights, to be able to be there in that location at that same time. I, I think one of my highlights was the whole service was in Arabic. So it, it, yeah. that was like the downside. The good side was that he only spoke for half as long because he had to be translated. So, <laughs> What are you saying? You didn't laugh. Dude. That was a well, joke. I, I've come to expect it. It's part of the Australian makeup, I believe. Man. Australian. Yeah, that's right. But it was, it was one wonderful. of the families yeah. I remember, remember was a family who said they were warned that the Islamic State group, the militant group, was coming into their town, and they had minutes to leave. And he said, can you imagine, we packed up whatever we could, and within 10 minutes, he had his family in the car, and they left town. Yeah. And they had come down to this place, Erbil. That's right. Even the, the old gentleman that you saw that we took a photo of, or Skip took a photo of, that old 80-year-old man, they had, he was from Mosul, and they took him and his wife 25 miles outside the city, took their shoes off, took their shoes, took all the gold that they have, everything, and made them, they basically walked 25, 30 miles back in, and that's when he hurt his foot. And so there are numerous stories, and like you said, of just complete trauma and just despair. So one of the interesting stories was there was a a young girl and her mother outside the church that night that, that Skip spoke, and God told me, go out and talk to this lady, right? So I, I was talking... She didn't speak English that well. She said, this is my daughter. She was about 23. Said she was an engineer. And, and uh, as I spoke to her, she never answered me. She just looked at me. And it was, you know, kind of strange. I was thinking, why is she trying to communicate? Well, her mum said her father was killed in Mosul. 
And since that day, she hasn't spoken to anyone, not even uh, her mother. Yeah. And it, it's like emotional for me because it was like just looking at this person who, you know, this is the real face of the tragedy was this girl. And, and her mum's like, dude, pray for her. She didn't say do, but she said, would you please pray for her? <laughs> so there we are praying on the, the side of the street in her bill for this girl. And I believe God really touched it. You could just tell, she, you know, she was speaking through her eyes help you know so it was a powerful night yeah and then we had um a privilege of doing something i didn't expect and that is to meet with the very head the prince he's called of the yazidi tribe have you heard about them on the news it's one of those religious groups that had to flee up to mount sinjar when isis came in and you're looking at some of the men in fact the one in white with the white um looks like a cake almost on his head but it's a turban <laughs> Is, is, is like the Pope of the Yazidi religion. Now, the Yazidis, and there are a few million of them in the world, they believe it's kind of a combination of aspects from Christianity, some aspects from Zoroastrianism. They typically worship the sun. It's passed down by oral tradition, not really script. But they were so open and so gracious to receive us, have lunch with us, and I got to dialogue with the prince about about Christ and His love. And they said, of all the people in the world, Christians have treated them with the most respect and love. And they were so thankful, so grateful. So we were there at lunch. Then in the evening, we went to an IDP camp. Yeah. And boy, what a sight. Mm. Can you imagine 18,000 people living in tents? Mm. And here's a small section. 18,000 people. We met with the leaders of this camp. All of them internally displaced. All of them said, thank you, Thank you. And they said, thank you, America, for two reasons. Thank you for coming in and taking out Saddam Hussein because of what he did to our people. They all said that. That was interesting. Yeah. You don't hear politicians talk about that here, but you hear the people who've been freed say that. Thank you for taking out Saddam Hussein because he was so against us. And then number two, thank you for responding to this tragedy uh, the way you have. And they said, We're, we want four things. Number one... We would love to see our relatives who have been kidnapped by ISIS somehow returned. Number two, we would like to see them pushed back to stop this tragedy. Number three, we would like security from them coming even into the camps because there's reports that they can do that. Then number four, way down the list, they said we want electricity, water, and just those basic necessities of life. But first, we would just want our relatives who've been captured taken back to the families. Being there at that camp and you see just, it looks like it goes on for miles. And the, the way that the UN has set it up, the, the roads actually etched into the mountainside. This is one of over 2,065 or 95 locations like this because you're talking about 3 million people displaced just in that region alone. And, and it's, it's just astounding. One of the things there that, speaking with Reload Love, of seeing these little kids running around um, and the idea of creating a safe space for them in, in a camp like this, uh, just prior to this, a few days before we got there, uh, 11 girls were taken captive by ISIS. 
um, and they, uh, when you when you're considered uh, they dishonored, were they were impregnated. They were they they returned to the camp, and generally, what is done by the family is they do honor killings or mercy killings, where they would um, rid them of the father or the parents would have to kill their own children, but. With Samaritan's Purse and with um, the organizations that we were working with, um, had talked to the parents and allowed these 11 girls to come back into the camp. They're, of course, pregnant, but that's, this is the mentality of ISIS. Um, whether they can torture or rape them, um, they'll do that, or they will change an entire population of the Kurds or the Yazidis. Yes, so now the families are accepting their girls That's and right. accepting the children that exactly. will be born into the world and uh, through counseling uh, are willing and, and acceptable to raise them yeah. in their families. So that's, that was outstanding. Astonishing, really. Yeah. But then, you guys, you remember the very next day, we saw what it was like when they told us, these people will go anywhere. They'll look for abandoned buildings. Oh, yeah. And we found one building an abandoned building where 624 people have decided to settle down in, and you're seeing the building from the outside. Um, most of these people are from the north, from the Sinjar area. Most of them are Yazidis, and they have fled, and they have taken refuge in a building. 624 people, one toilet. It's an unfinished building. So a Samaritan's Purse has gone in, uh-huh. and they're going to construct zones so that children can play and you, we saw children standing around just wondering what's next. But look at some of the pictures of these families and these children and just how precious they are, how precious yeah. they were. This man in the red kafia, all of his children and his wife were killed. He's alone except for the people that he met in this abandoned building. He's relocated. He's just wandering around, sitting around. But there were children. They had lost relatives as well. But at the same time, we saw them so resilient. Um, we'll just let you take a little uh, snapshot, a little view at, at, at these kids. You know, they're children, and they need to be placed in a normalized kind of a situation where they can play with other children. And um, look, after you see these pictures, we're going to show you a little video that uh, Jared shot. Mm-hmm. On this, on the site. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? Aren't they just precious? One of the cool things was playing the guitar for these kids. It totally unlocked them and got them singing and dancing. So that was a lot of fun. Let's show you that video. People living here, they are uh, from Sinjar, uh, a town called Catania. When uh, ISIS came, ISIS killed some of their relatives, so they all fled into the Sinjar Mountains. Um, uh, when they were in the mountains, ISIS captured about 250 of their relatives and clan members. Uh, for f- it took them about five days in Sinjar Mountain uh, region, and they uh, walked to the Syrian border. They were taken to a refugee camp in Syria, Nauruz. Uh, and then when... Um, when they when they got there, the the leaders decided that they wanted to come back to their own country. So they returned uh, to northern Iraq, and uh, they made an arrangement, I think, through a family contact who was working on this site, and uh, they moved in here. So uh, this is the site. And there's going to be three sections, which will partition by tarp. Um, 
so one section will be designated for youngest children where the moms can come and play with their children and there'll be some toys suitable for ages like five and under and then there'll be a section with a playground for older kids like six six and up and then another spot where we're going to put in a classroom and art space um, with some reading reading area for the kids as well as reading and math tutoring and then in the art space also that can be an area for teenage girls to come and meet and have a space to come as well as some organized arts and crafts uh, and there's about 260 kids in Cora about 150 between ages of 2 and 11 and about 100 11 to 18 um, but it's, it's a long-term problem, um, and with each passing day, the government is trying to force families into formal camps. Um, but uh, we, we very much, God has opened this door of opportunity here at Cora School, and we want to make the most of it. That no one is helping, no one is serving these folks. I mean, talk about 620 people with one working toilet, um, no shower in place. Yeah, and anything that we want to put in place here, like the playground, for example, is, is things that would be portable, that could be moved to a different location if the people here moved and if we assess different needs. Yeah, you know, one of the things I, I recall while we were there is looking into some of the rooms where families had settled. And I went into one of them, and I met a family. I met a father and with his wife, his children, one room, Mats rolled up in the corner where they would unfold them at night to sleep. They were cooking something in the middle. And yet, with all of that loss, the man said, please come in and have some tea with us. Mm-hmm. The hospitality, the, the friendliness, you know, was still a fabric of, they were still reaching out and wanting to normalize and make it their home. And they were pleased to invite somebody into their home. They were so grateful. Um, I, re- I saw you walk in there when you took your shoes off, and um, this this place is like an eight by eight room, and uh, his whole family was in there. Usually, about eight people fit in that little room, and you walked in there, and it's it's gripping because again, the floors are dirt. It's it's a building that it's not completed. Someone else owns it. They just filled in the space, and uh, they allowed us into their their life. And um, these were many of the people from Sinjar um, that received brutality. I mean, to hear the stories. Is, and the good news yeah. is that the field workers are going to they're going to b- finish building the septic tank, put in Sanitary, restaurants, yeah. uh, restaurants, restrooms, yeah. uh, showers, um, yeah. uh, cooking facilities. Right. You know, places for kids to play. Mm-hmm places to be counseled, so they're going to make it a real home. And that's where Relo Love, um, the girl who was speaking there, Jessica is her name, and she was explaining the idea of putting some gravel down and putting tarps in between and creating these safer zones, and this is where we as a church and Relo Love are, this is what we have invested into, so that this facility will be able to be used as a school, tutoring, music, Little kids can play on the ground. Remember, they don't have, many of them don't have shoes, and they're walking around this mud with human waste and such. You right, know, it's so pretty gnarly. Yeah. We see that education stops. Oh, it's gone. Yeah. And, and so the children's only reference is what they're living in. So that's why it's so important to provide a place where they can learn and Absolutely. learn right. right. Then the last day, um, we went back to Erbil, and... We weren't done seeing camps. We saw two more IDP camps. And the next four pictures, let me explain something, and I didn't know this, but you're looking at 
what they call caravans. So what they do is they try to move them from a tent structure, which is the first emergency shelter, but then they move them into something like this. Still one room, but it's a little more semi-permanent. One room, but they're kind of a rudimentary prefab building. And families live, and again, it's spread out like a city. What's interesting about this first one is that there was a medical clinic inside. Now, the medical clinic is staffed by 17 doctors, nurses, pharmacists. All of them are IDPs. All of the professionals have themselves been displaced. They're part of that group that live there. But they happen to be professionals. When a city gets displaced, all of its inhabitants get displaced. So to see these doctors and nurses and pharmacists working among their own people, um, medicine is giving, given to them. They're able to treat on a monthly basis between 750 and 1,100 people with, yeah. with emergency medicine. It was pretty astounding in that little medical facility, and it was a, a sister, Diane, right? Sister Diana. Di Diana. Sister Diana, a nun who was working among them, she was walking us around, and there were, there were these cargo, you know, um, containers, basically, that they were just doing checkups with the kids, with the parents, and they were just going to even a dental office. And it was amazing to see them pull together and serve in any way, any type of capacity that they could, serving their own people. But this is in the downtown urban area of Erbil where another several thousand people are living on the streets or yeah. in these little and sections. One, yeah. one thing to remember, and we, you saw the blue tarps, and they're symbolic. I mean, the, all the IDP camps and... Uh, use these blue tarps to block off windows and cut the, the wind down. It, it's brutally cold there in winter and in summer it gets up to, what, 120? 120 degrees. And so there is no uh, air conditioning um, for a lot of these people. So they're kind of, you know, out there with the elements. But praise God for that, that clinic. And Sister Diane, what a, a treasure. i tell you what, it's one thing to see um, sound bites on the news and to see something covered in two and a half minutes and vastly different to be there and hear the stories and see the faces yeah. of the so many people yeah. that have suffered so much. Well, you know, I think um, what, it, what really opened my eyes to the body of Christ is from Lebanon to Iraq and then even at the tail end of Jordan is realizing that like Sister Diana, like the IDP camps that we went to, you don't realize how many Christians are in these locations. And I shared that with some of the workers that we were with. I said, I'm from America. I generally just lump everybody together, and I think everybody's Islamic. You know, they're Muslim. And, and I said, I, I'm so amazed that every person, I, most of the people I came in contact with were Christian. There, there are, you're seeing a really a persecution of the Christians by ISIS against the Christians. Yeah, that's, that's very saying. important. Um, the pastor that we met with down in Erbil, mm -hmm. he said when he grew up in Baghdad going to school, you would see one-third of the students Christian. Christian students were about a third of, of any class. He goes, you'd be lucky to find a single Christian in any of the schools at this point. They've been eradicated. They've been pushed out which is part of the grand scheme of the Islamic State. And so the populations have shifted. Let's go to a final. We're just going to show you a few more pictures and we're done. But we went to 
a camp called Mar Elias Camp. 624 people in a camp that is headed by a Chaldean archdiocese priest, a Father Douglas. He lives there. It, it was such a different place in that he never calls it a camp. He calls it a community. And he tells the people, you're not refugees. We are relatives. Mm-hmm. And he elevates their status. We came into the camp. It was quiet. And, I, and, and he said, you notice it's so quiet. And I said, why is that? He said, because the men are gone. That's right. He said, I send the men out every day and they get a job. They work and they bring back to the community and they're assimilating into the local culture. But he has created child-friendly spaces, a library, a music room. They're building a kindergarten uh, kindergarten for them. And... um, it's like phase two, really. I mean, this is kind of where you can see it developing more so from the tents, right? So look at the screen. This is in the library, and there's messages like this. <laughs> Noah got drunk. Jacob lied. Moses murdered. Rahab was a prostitute. David had an affair. God still used them. He can use you too. You know, he's, they're always giving them hope. Yeah. And don't forget, this, this man was amazing. Just to sit and listen to him talk. He, he was an example. He was an inspiration. And he'd been kidnapped and tortured by ISIS himself. Yeah, five times or so. He had his teeth bashed in with a hammer um, by ISIS, shot in both legs, had his back broken, and um, watched his church burn down. And during the process of being tortured, um, leaders of ISIS would come in and ask him what was different. They'd break down crying, and he led a few of them to Christ who work with him now at this camp because he wouldn't scream because he wouldn't scream and that's right and he said powerful the future of my country lies in the children yeah. if we can educate them that's and right. show them the love of christ amen that will change this country so he is committed yeah. to um to that and yeah. as desperate as it is you see pictures like this of the kids smiling yeah. and what we noticed is that when we were at that one school mm-hmm. that one abandoned building mm-hmm. these hurt Aimless, wondering people could break out and smile and song. They would laugh when you oh, break out did. a guitar. Mm-hmm. And we have a little video clip. I didn't realize you could lead worship. That's great. Well, awesome. you, you saw that? This is why I don't lead worship. Well, those little kids, they were all clapping. I but, know. you know, that's where the resources, I, I believe, for Reload and, you know, being able to raise over really $145,000 with Reload Love, that's in action right there. And, and you were a part of that. And thank you for that. And we brought a guitar. Yes. And, yes. and we left the guitar. The girl in that video who was the blonde, 
She wanted to lead worship that morning, but she was embarrassed because her guitar was broken. And she works there. And she works there. And so we brought a guitar with us. Said, "Here you go. Here's your new guitar." And and I said, "You got to promise that you'll play this at that school, like we did, and get those kids happy." So That's she's right. going to be playing that as part of her ministry to, to those children. So, so yeah, you know, the Middle East is a wonderful place, but it's not all camels. And tourist attractions. You know, there's a lot of pain there. But I want you to know how thankful they are that you have prayed for them and uh, allocated funds to them. And, and let's just kind of close out before we break up in just a few moments of prayer for you to watch this. Watch this little thank you. Thank you, Calvary Church. Thank you for replay love of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for help. Thank you for helping all those people. Thank you for replay love. Okay, so he called it replay love. He couldn't pronounce it. We couldn't get him to say reload love. We tried it, but he just, it was just like, whatever. But you get the gist. He really did have a thankful heart. You he spoke did. with him. Yeah. That, that gentleman was an Iraqi soldier for three years, helped translate for the U.S. troops. And uh, actually helped with uh, finding Saddam Hussein at the time. He was walking by um, Samaritan's Purse and heard a Bible study. They invited him in. He had tremendous profanity because of the American soldiers, but they told him he couldn't say those things. And Skip was able to interview him and talk to him on a, on another video that we have that will be on a Reload uh, website. But this young man... Um, he just broke down in tears because he lost everything, lost his property, lost everything. But, you know, a funny thing about it is he looked at Skip with tears in his eyes and said, but I've gained more. I've gained Jesus Christ and I've gained life. And that was the result. Yeah. I just wanted to say thank you for praying for this team while they were gone. Um, it's, you know intimidating for you guys to land there but it's also intimidating for us and I had so many people call and say they woke up in the middle of the night or the Lord laid specific things on your heart and it really does take a village uh, to be able to do this they might get to be the ones that go but we are the senders and so I want to thank you that uh, you sent them in your hearts and uh, with your funds and, um, you know, we keep saying around 145 and 146, and I'm kind of convinced tonight if you gave more, we could probably have 150,000. <laughs> so um, my husband never really no does more. that. And, and so I'm just saying, obviously, you can see the need is great. Every dime uh, is going to be swallowed up quickly, and we're going to be right back wanting to do the next school and the next help. And the clinic you visit, I think it was how much a day just to run that clinic or a month? 20,000 a month just for the medicine in that clinic. So you can see that the need is very great. So um, these guys are going to be at the Reload Love kiosk when you're done. So if you wanted, after you've prayed, if you want to continue to give, it's going to be an ongoing uh, need for these people. And uh, it it doesn't end just because you came home. It's going to continue. And I also just wanted to say thank you that um, you believed in a dream of taking some spent bullet casings and making them into brass charms to help kids who are caught in the crossfire of terrorism. 
And I don't know if any of you ever dreamed that you would be stepping foot in the Middle East and actually meeting these kids, because I sure didn't dream that when it happened. It was something far away, and it's, it's been birthed right in front of you. So I want you to know God is an amazing God. He does amazing things, and he can do anything. And he can take people from Albuquerque, New Mexico, to Erbil, Iraq, and you are making a difference. One person makes a difference. One necklace makes a difference. A handful of those bullets make a difference. A dollar makes a difference. So I want you to feel like you're a part of the journey, that this is all, you know, we are one in, in, in Christ. Thank you. If you've missed any of our Expound studies, all of our services and resources are available at expoundabq.org.